is Dark Centeno, and this is my podcast on craniocervical instability, or my CCI podcast. Now, some of this is going to follow the blog series that I've been doing on CCI, and some of it's going to depart from that. My goal here is to try to educate patients with craniocervical instability about their treatment options, about diagnoses, all that kind of stuff. While some of that is going to follow some of the blogs I've done, some of it's going to depart from that, like this first episode. So this first episode's basically going to be who I am and how I got involved in craniocervical instability. And I think it'll be interesting. There is no blog that I've produced for this first one. So it's only in podcast form. So I'm a physician. At this point, I've been a physician for a long, long time. I graduated medical school in 1989. I graduated my residency in 1993. And my board certification was in physical medicine rehab. I then got additional certifications in interventional pain management. I got involved with craniocervical instability kind of an interesting way. I actually, in my first couple years in practice, started to see a lot of patients who had been involved in car crashes. And this was because the guy I was working for at the time uh, had that kind of practice. And I, as a result, started to see a lot of these patients. Now, I had no idea, based on my training, how to help these people. I literally didn't know, like most doctors. And one of the interesting things was that I met a local audiologist who had some insights about cervicogenic dizziness. That's dizziness that comes from an injury to the upper neck. What was interesting was that he was an old school audiologist doing what's called ENG studies, electronystigmograms. Unlike the newer software that was starting to come out at that time where ENT doctors that did this test would just rely on what the software told them was wrong, this guy's name was Ed. Ed, as an audiologist, would dissect all this data. And he was pretty sure that what he saw in his data was telling him that there was a neck problem, but he couldn't really get anybody in the community to listen to him that was really interested. So when Ed and I kind of met and crossed paths, he was very excited. He had met somebody who was perhaps a kindred spirit who would listen to his theories about the neck. And sure enough, Ed was right. I mean, at the end of the day, I started seeing some of these patients referred through Ed. I started sending some of my patients with dizziness and imbalance after car crashes to Ed. And what we found was that all of this was coming from the upper neck. Now, there was research published that kind of showed that. And that research at that time was in the mid-90s, was just starting to be developed. But it was an interesting thing. And so I started to get a real interest in how to treat cervicogenic dizziness or dizziness that was coming from the neck. So let's take a second here and talk about cervicogenic dizziness because it's going to be important later as we talk about CCI. Cervicogenic dizziness, we now know, happens because your body has a number of redundant mechanisms within it for determining balance. One of those is obvious, and you've probably heard about your inner ear. Another system is information coming in from your eyes, and a third system is your upper neck. And all three of those systems have to give the same information in order for you to be able to determine which end is up and to stay 
balance and have normal balance. Now, when one of those systems is off, you can get dizzy or feel imbalanced or get nauseated. Now, that can happen like when you're on a ship, right? You're on a small boat, and when you're above decks looking at the horizon, all three systems are telling you that the world is moving up and down with the waves. But when you go below decks, what tends to happen is most people get sick. And they get sick because your eyes are saying nothing is moving, but your inner ear is saying that the world is moving up and down. So we've got a mismatch. The same thing happens in your neck. If your neck isn't giving accurate information to your brain that is correlating with information coming in from your eyes and inner ear, you tend to get dizzy, lose balance, and feel sick. So how does that relate to CCI, and how, how does that relate to a story of how I got into CCI? Well, after treating cervicogenic dizziness for a number of years, I started to then get introduced to providers who were using, at that time, a very nascent technology called DMX, Digital Motion X-Ray, to look at instability in the spine. And we were also using flexion extension X-rays to look at instability. Now, the problem was that instability was only really being treated by surgeons. So we were some of the first non-surgeons to publish papers on using injectable solutions to tighten ligaments. And we would demonstrate that we could solve some of these cervical instability problems, meaning areas that were moving around too much in the neck because ligaments had been damaged in car crash patients. So again, I was seeing a lot of car crash patients. Many of them would injure ligaments in their neck. The levels would become unstable. They'd move around too much. That would bump into nerves. That would irritate joints. That would piss off muscles. And they would get problems. Now, when that instability was in their upper neck, they would get specific problems. They'd get headaches. They would get dizziness. They would get imbalance. They would get visual issues, etc. All of that coming from their upper neck. So... Fast forward a number of years, we started treating many of these patients. The good news is that by tightening down the ligaments in their neck through things like prolotherapy injections and by also doing other types of treatments that were available at the time, we could help a good number of these patients. But the big problem was there was clearly a group of patients we couldn't do anything with. And these tended to be patients who I later learned had craniocervical instability. No matter what we did with these patients, facet injections in their neck, at the time we were using corticosteroids, radiofrequency ablation in their neck, tightening down their ligaments with prolotherapy that we could easily reach, those patients just didn't respond. So we had this chronic population that was going nowhere. They weren't getting help, regardless of what we did. And I started to look at how we could help them. Now at first, I started to try to see if we could use some of the new things we were using at that time. So now we're kind of in the 2005 timeframe, 2010. We had just started to use bone marrow concentrate and platelet-rich plasma, as well as culture-expanded stem cells. So we were really the first physicians on earth at that time to use some of these advanced cell therapies in the spine. In fact, I was the first physician to inject stem cells in a disc on earth. I was the first physician to do many different procedures with stem cells. So we started to add these two things together. We started to treat some of the upper neck joints with stem cells, and we got some patients to respond in that non-response category. 
but we still had patients that weren't responding who had cranial cervical instability. We could see that on DMX. And at that point, literally, and this is now fast forwarding to around 2013, uh, we had a large model in the office, and this model was a C1, C2. It was very big. It had the ALAR and transverse ligaments on it so that we could educate patients about the craniocervical instability. And I started looking at the model and said, how are we going to reach these ligaments? We can't come from the back because the spinal cord's in the way. So the posterior approach was off the table. The only way that you could really do this is to go from the front and there was a little tiny hole made by the C1 and C2 bones on either side of the dens, which is that process that sticks up on C2. And it didn't even have a name. I tried to look it up, but I could see that hole on the model where you could pass a needle through in order to treat these ligaments to get direct access to the upper neck ligaments. There are ligaments that hold your head on. One of those is the alar ligament. Another is the transverse ligament. There are accessory ligaments. Uh, there's atlanto-occipital and capsular ligaments, superficial atlanto-occipital ligaments, tectorial membrane, posterior atlanto-occipital membrane, lots of different things that hold your head on. And we wanted to get to those deep ligaments, the alar transverse accessory ligaments. Now, I could come from the front on the model, but I didn't know if that was really there. I looked at lots and lots of different cadaver dissections. I looked on MRIs and I convinced myself that this was likely possible. So literally we tried our first patient, but that was a difficult thing for me to conceptualize because being a traditional interventional spine physician, I knew that we could inject through skin. I knew that there were doctors that did perioral injections, meaning the way we would have to get there is going through the back of the throat. So I knew that that was possible to do, but I wasn't clear that it was going to work. We actually scheduled our first patient towards the end of 2013, 2014, early 2014, and used a tongue depressor to keep the tongue down, washed off the back of the throat really well. And under x-ray guidance, we were able to pass a needle through that little hole. And so we knew that this thing would work. Early on, this was a very, very difficult procedure because number one, it had never been done before. There was some research on people who had put bigger needles back there, trocars, to inject into bones for people with upper neck cancer and to inject bone cement, but no one had ever tried to inject these ligaments. So long story short is the first 10 of these we did, we were learning. We learned some things relatively quickly that we would need a specialized mouthpiece which we had to create in order to keep the mouth open. At first, we found one that was commercially available that we used for a while, but it wasn't really perfect. So we ultimately had to create a multitude of special mouthpieces to keep the tongue down and the mouth open so that we could access this area. And literally every year we learned more and more and more about how to do this well. You know, by 2015, gaining some comfort, by 2016, gaining some comfort, learning where some of these ligaments were, learning how to get reliable injections in certain ligaments. By 2017, learning more. By 2018, learning more. Right now, as I record this in early 2020, we've done about 160 cases. So we've learned an immense amount about how to inject these ligaments. We're now actually doing brand new things that we've never done before. Before, we would always go underneath the atlas into that little hole. 
Now we're learning that we can also go over the atlas to be able to go ahead and inject some other ligaments that we want to get to or other parts, for instance, of the alar ligaments. We've dialed in most of this, but we're still adding new features to this procedure as we learn more. That's the story of how I got here. And ultimately, we gave it a name, PICL. So PICL stands for percutaneous implantation of the CCJ ligaments. CCJ ligaments are the ligaments we're talking about, also called craniocervical ligaments. CCJ stands for craniocervical junction. So PICL is the procedure name now. Uh, we've had that name for the last year, year and a half. We certainly know that this procedure is far safer than cervical fusion, meaning that we've had no serious complications to date. And if we had performed this many cervical fusions, we would have had many, many more complications. And we're seeing very nice results. We are in the process of pulling together some data for publication. We have randomized controlled trial ongoing, but that takes years to complete and perform. And we're using bone marrow concentrate, which is a same-day stem cell procedure, which is a procedure that we helped to pioneer for ligament use in other areas. So that's the PICL story. That's how I started treating craniocervical instability. I came about this kind of through a different direction of seeing patients that I couldn't help trying to figure out a way to help them and trying to do that without surgery. Through the years, we would see patients who had had cervical fusions and, and the results were just awful. We were not at all impressed with those results. So I knew there had to be a better way. So this is the end of episode one of my CCI series and my podcasts. Again, these are going to loosely follow the blogs. This one doesn't have a blog associated with it at this time, but we'll also talk about some blogs as I move forward. So thanks so much for listening and have a great day.